0: Well, uh, again, it's it's a joy to be here today uh, again. Happy Father's Day uh, to all the dads and spiritual fathers. We know um, we we thank you for everything that you do. Uh, I have The privilege of bringing us God's word. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Matthew, chapter 28. Verses 16 to 20, Matthew 28. Verses 16 to 20. Uh, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the New Living translation, translation, the NLT, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. This is the reading of God's Word. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we're in a series right now called The Church We Long For. And uh, we're, each week we're asking the question, what is the kind of church God desires us to be? You know, a lot of churches today are known for their music, uh, their preaching, their kids' programs. Uh, but what kind of a church does God want us to be? What kind of a church, what do we as a church want to be marked by? And today we're looking at one of the most famous texts in the Bible. This passage that has come to be known as the Great Commission. These are the very last words uttered by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. This is kind of Jesus' final charge to his disciples. Um, It's kind of like a parent uh, dropping their child off at college for the first time. You know, my my firstborn is only six years old. I'm already dreading that day. And uh, I imagine myself uh, dropping her off at college, saying something along the lines of, you know, for the past 18 years, um, I have given you everything I have. I've have taught you everything I know. Uh, I've tried to be the best dad I could possibly be, but now you're an adult. You now you've got to start learning how to make your own decisions. I know it's scary, but I've been preparing you for this your entire life. And this is kind of what's happening in Matthew 28. Jesus has spent the past three years with his disciples, doing life with them, eating with them, um, you, know, share, you know, just sharing, uh, sharing stories with them, teaching them everything he knows. And here we are at the end. He has died. He has risen from the grave. And he's saying, now it's up to you. Now I want you to do this same thing. I've given you everything that I have. I've given you all the wisdom I have. And now you got to start doing this for others you have to start making disciples he's saying i know you're scared but i've been preparing you for this moment your entire life he's saying everything boils down to this you know in his best-selling book start with why simon sinek makes the argument that the primary difference between organizations that survive and organizations that die really comes down to that organization's ability to articulate and maintain the why. Why they exist. Why they do what they do. Because he says, if the people in your organization do not know the why, it doesn't matter how innovative and cutting edge your products or services are, it won't matter in the long run. That, that organization is destined to die. Well, Matthew 28, 19 is the why of the church. It is why we exist. Not to create a social club, not to put on a Sunday event, not to have our needs met, but to go and make disciples. And the question I have to ask is, how are we doing at that? A recent Barna study reports that the number of practicing Christians has dropped in half since the year 2000. Not only that, it's reported that an estimated 35 million youths raised in the church growing up in Christian homes will abandon their faith by the year 2050. That's a staggering number. And it, 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 it's there's a heaviness that sets in even as we just um, you know, welcome some of our youth students um, into our main service. 35 million youths will leave their faith by the year 2050. So much so that the conclusion that many researchers have reached is that purely on a statistical level, statistically speaking, the U.S. church has reached what they're calling the point of irreversible decline. That barring a supernatural act of God, this is a sinking ship. And we have to ask ourselves the question, could it be what's happening is happening because we as the church have lost sight of the why. I heard a, few year, uh, heard a story a few years ago about Habitat for Humanity. It's an organization many of you are probably familiar with, and there was one particular chapter of the organization that on the outside looked very healthy. They had a committee that met regularly, they had a board that made decisions. They had a pretty strong social media presence. Everyone in the organization was close, but they hadn't built a home in two years. And the CEO of Habitat for Humanity came in and said, look, y'all can keep meeting. Uh, You know, y'all can keep doing what you're doing, but if you don't build a home anytime soon, we're going to take the name Habitat for Humanity from your chapter. And it was kind of harsh, but it makes sense because you can't be called Habitat for Humanity and not build habitats. You can't be called the church and not make disciples, because making disciples is why we exist. It is who we're called to be. Neil Cole, in his book, Ordinary Hero, Becoming a Disciple Who Makes a Difference, he writes this, and I'm gonna put this quote up um, on the screen behind me, very sobering quote. He says, ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as her disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. It's a humbling thought. And the idea is this. If the primary purpose of the church, if the reason the church exists is to form people into the image of Jesus, but the people it produces do not resemble Jesus in any way, shape, or form, then you probably have to rethink everything you're doing which brings me to the first point. If you're taking notes, I know, um, our children are joining us. And so they have, our children ministry director creates these beautiful packets for them. Um, and they have points, but our first point is what is a disciple? Let's start with that. What is a disciple? That word disciple is not a word we use very often in our culture, which is why I think the moment you hear the phrase make disciples, we automatically kind of feel disconnected from it, right? We typically think of disciples as elite Christians, um, you know, I was talking to one of my friends who went on a hinge date recently, um, and, you know, don't worry, she's not in this room, um, but uh, she was telling me about her date, and the guy she was on a date with asked her, hey, so, like, I saw you go to church, you know, are you, like, really involved, and she said, yeah, you know, I serve pretty much every week, and he was like, oh, so you're, like, you're, like, one of those Christians, you're, like, disciple-level Christian, right, as if there were multiple levels to Christianity, and yet when you read the Bible, Jesus doesn't say go and make Christians or go and make churchgoers. Jesus says go and make disciples. You either follow Jesus or you don't. Uh, recently I had an opportunity to say one line in a TV show uh, that's coming out sometime next year, and my friends have been joking around with me, saying, Oh, so now you're an actor, eh? You know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not an actor. I acted in one thing once. I know a little bit about acting, because I have family members and friends who are actors, but I'm not an actor. In fact, it would be offensive and even ridiculous to even imply that I'm an actor. And it has nothing to do with skill or experience, because I think I said the line pretty well. You know, It has everything to do with the fact that there is nothing about my life that reflects the fact that I'm an actor. There is nothing about my life that would suggest that I'm pursuing acting as a career. I don't take classes. I don't have an agent or a manager. I don't study other actors. I don't go out to auditions. I haven't organized my schedule in a way that makes acting possible. So to call myself an actor kind of doesn't make sense. Well, being a disciple of Jesus has nothing to do with going to a few church events or knowing a little bit about God. Being a disciple of Jesus means organizing our entire lives under his authority and lordship. In verse 18, we read, Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go. Because I have all authority, because I'm worthy of your life, therefore go and make disciples. It means, discipleship means allowing Jesus to have the final say in the way you spend your money, Being a disciple means allowing Jesus to have the final say in how you conduct your business and how you raise your kids. It means willingly tethering yourself to community. It means studying God's word and spending intentional time in God's presence. And really that word disciple is just translated, is translated from a word that means learner or student or apprentice. And we have to understand that back in Jesus' day, to be a student or apprentice very different from what we might think of when we hear those words today. To be a student or apprentice of a rabbi, you basically spent every waking moment with that rabbi. You ate with him, you did life with him, you learned from him, you slept in the same place with him, you traveled from, from region to region with him. To be a student of a rabbi, you weren't just acquiring knowledge, you were learning a way of life. And this is how all vocations worked. It wasn't like how it is now where we have endless choices for careers. If, you were a, if your father was a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter. If your father was a blacksmith, you were going to be a blacksmith. If your father was a fisherman, you were going to be a fisherman. And you spent every waking moment with your father learning his life, learning his craft, learning how he did things, so that one day you could take all of that, you could take that way of life, and you could pass it on to the next generation and the generation after that. This is what it looks like to make disciples. It's imparting a way of life to those under your care. It's baptizing and teaching. It's not just bringing someone into a new family. It's showing them how to live in that family. And this is a directive not just given to pastors. This is not just given to church leaders and church staff. This is a directive given to all believers. Now, you might be thinking, look, I can't even get my own life in order, let alone like, baptize people and teach them to organize their entire lives around Jesus. Right? That seems like a lot. Well, what if I told you that you're already a disciple and you're already making disciples? You're already a disciple, you're already making disciples. You're already organizing your entire life around some vision of what you believe a good life to be and you are already imparting that vision on those around you. So the question isn't whether you want to be a disciple, the question is who or what are you a disciple of? And that's the second point. Who or what are you a disciple of? Okay? And let me tell you something the world is doing an incredible job right now of discipling us into its vision. The world is doing an incredible job of discipling us into its vision of the good life every day we are being formed into its image every day we're learning how to live in its way every day we're surrounded by people who evangelize this vision to us through an onslaught of cultural messaging that infiltrates our bodies and minds through a digital iv it's happening to us every day you know one of my courses in seminary wrote my final paper on beyonce okay love queen bee Okay, my entire paper was a systematic analysis of her performance at Coachella in 2018, uh, which I think was one of the single greatest performances of all time, okay? One New York Times reviewer said this, there's not likely to be a more meaningful, absorbing, forceful, and radical performance by an American musician this year or any year soon. You can find that documentary on Netflix, it's called Homecoming, and I was watching this documentary for like the sixth time. For research purposes of course right watching this documentary and i thought to myself how is it that in a world where cultural christianity is dying and there are more and more people who say they're not religious that they don't believe in god how is it that beyonce is able to craft an experience that can be described as nothing more than utterly spiritual and utterly transcendent if you turn down the volume and i've done this and just watch People's faces in the audience as they're taking in the performance you can't categorize that as anything other than worship is worship right and I mean like obviously they're not worshiping Jesus but they are worshiping their Messiah who in this case is Beyonce a deity like figure incarnated in the flesh to deliver a message of love empowerment and liberation to all her people right And literally, when you break down the performance, it is by all accounts a worship service. There is a call to worship. There is a confession of faith. You even have a worship team that consists of a 100 dancers, a drumline, and a marching band. Every song and symbol incorporated into the set communicates and ritualizes a secular worldview that says salvation equals liberation of your true self giving yourself over to every desire of the flesh, consuming and indulging to your heart's desire until all your needs are met and everyone in that crowd is bought in. It is a captive audience. I said, I've never seen a picture of Revelation 7 more clear. Every tribe, tongue, and nation (laughs) worshiping, praising, lifting their voices. And really... Like, they, they started calling it becella, okay? Because, I mean, it, it might as well. She might as well have been the only performer there. And they basically started saying that in the end, Beychella wasn't an isolated kind of thing. What Beychella was was really just a celebration and an overflow of all the ways people were already being discipled into some vision of life. And you watch something like that, and you're like, dang, Beyonce got discipleship down. Can we get that energy in the church? While the church is arguing about meaningless things and putting on another three-part seminar called Discipleship 101, our culture is masterfully discipling us into its vision of what a good life looks like. But here's the sad reality. This life that we've all been discipled into, this vision that promises a happiness that comes out of accumulating more things, more money, more influence, more popularity, as enticing as it is and as beautiful as this vision can be on the outside, this culture can't deliver on those promises. Every single person in this room knows that nagging angst that still exists inside each and every one of us. And deep down, we all know this. Steve Cutts um, is an illustrator who uses art as social commentary. And uh, he has a few pieces that made me cry uh, when I saw them, because really it's a picture of who our culture um, is being discipled to be. I think about our students. Uh, If you were at our congregational meeting last Sunday, Uh, You heard our children's ministry director say that we have 155 students on our children's ministry roster. We have a huge subset of the next generation coming up in our church, living in this culture. And Steve Cutts creates these pieces. I'm just going to put three up on the screen, and I think they'll speak for themselves. Here's the first one. Here's the second one. Mental illness is huge, as you know. and third one. And what all of these pictures are showing us and what all of these pictures are exposing is that is the emptiness that lies on the other side of the vision we've been spoon-fed our entire lives. And Jesus comes into this reality and he gives us a new vision. He invites us into a new way of being. A life where we're not exhausted or burnt out from constantly consuming and looking for the next high. A life that doesn't draw us deeper into loneliness and isolation, but one that draws us deeper into community. A life where we don't have to be insecure because our lives don't look like the cultural script that was handed to us. A life where we can experience genuine acceptance, love, and belonging. A life where we're seen for who we really are and still deeply loved. Jesus said, I came to give you that life. Don't settle for the alternative. I didn't come to take away, take away your joy. I came so that you would experience fullness of joy. I came to give you life and life abundantly, but people have to learn how to embrace that life. You have to learn how to be a blacksmith. You have to learn how to be a fisherman. You don't just become a musician over, overnight. You have to learn how to be one. You have to learn how to become a fully functioning human being. You have to learn how to live as a free person. You see, every person in this room, we are all products of discipleship. Whether we want to admit it or not, who we are today is the result of the ways we've been discipled. I'm sure if we took a moment right now and closed our eyes, we could all think of one person or a few people in our lives, a parent, a teacher, or a friend, who because of their belief and investment in us, completely altered the trajectory of our lives. Because they showed up for us when we needed them the most. Because they chose to sit with us and process with us. Because they chose to willingly give up their time and resources for us. Conversely, I'm sure many of us can think of ways we were discipled into habits and narratives that have deformed us. Narratives that have defined us our entire lives that need to be unlearned. Voices that have told us who we are and who we're not. Words and actions that have scarred us and formed us to live a certain way. And it is the church's primary call to be a space where people are reformed and reparented into the life Jesus freely offers us. To use Paul's words to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Sitting right next to you, there are many in this community who grew up in households where their parents told them that their worth or value was tied to their performance or their achievements. Did you know that it is our call to embody a love to them that says there is nothing they need to do to earn love or acceptance. There are some sitting next to you who have experienced deep abuse and wounding from authority figures in their life. Did you know it is our calling as the church to learn what it means to be leaders marked by humility and care? For those of us who grew up with absentee parents or without parents at all, the church should be a space where you find spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who will believe in you and invest in you and embody the love of Christ to you this is the call of matthew 28 to be a people that bears witness to what a life with jesus looks like and don't let that phrase make disciples of all nations deter you because sometimes you hear something like that and we think discipleship is something that happens all the way out there on the other side of the world no think about the way jesus himself did discipleship Jesus' method of discipleship was not getting on a plane and going, to, going out there somewhere to some remote, remote part of the world. He started with 12 guys who he did life with every day. They were the 12 guys who were right in front of him. And all 12 minus 11 basically did the same, or minus 1, sorry, not minus 11, minus 1 did the same for others who then did the same for others who then did the same for others He says, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It was this massive ripple effect of discipleship that started with one thing, relationship. Relationship. Right now, every single person in this room, I can say with confidence, uh, is in a position to make disciples. You know why? Because every person in this room is in relationship. There are people you interact with every single day, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, your co-workers, who you have an opportunity to model what a life with Jesus looks like, who you have an opportunity to be a vessel of God's counterformation in their lives, to speak words to them that will literally reform their understanding of themselves, of God, and the world. And in light of Father's Day, I especially want to speak to our dads. We have such an important task in front of us. You know what the single most important statistical factor in determining whether or not a teenage boy will commit a crime is? Do you know what it is? Their relationship with their fathers. Countless studies show us that teen boys who report close, intimate, joyful relationships with their dads will likely never become a crime statistic will likely never become a crime statistic and I believe this because every day as a part of my role at this church I meet with countless members of our community whose relationships with the father figures in their life for better or worse have completely changed the quality and altered the trajectory of their lives And so, as much as today is about honoring our fathers, I want to use this as an opportunity to remind us and and, and to make this be a sobering reminder of the weightiness we have as dads to equip and disciple the next generation to navigate the challenges of living in a broken world. So, two, we're asking, who or what are you a disciple of? And finally, three, how then do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? Let me say this. You and I will only disciple people into a vision of life that we ourselves have bought into, right? They say that discipleship is caught, not taught. In fact, everything, all of our habits, narratives, um, all of our ways of thinking, our paradigms of life, they're caught, not taught. As a parent, you can tell your kids, hey, I want you to come talk to us when you need help you know that you can talk to us no matter what. But if, but your, ki- if your kids never see their parents model um, embracing their weakness, model being honest about their insecurities and about their doubts, model asking for help and depending on others, if they don't see that model in the home, they are not going to come asking for help. If they see you only rewarding behavior where they're strong and where they're accomplishing things, it doesn't matter what you say because discipleship is caught, not taught. You will learn a lot about yourself and what you really value when you observe the patterns, thoughts, and habits formed in those who spend the most time with you. Bottom line. Churches have tried to create courses and workshops around this, but at the end of the day, we can't make disciples of Jesus unless we first become disciples disciples of Jesus we cannot introduce people to a way of life that we ourselves have never tasted or experienced because I'll tell you this once we begin to follow Jesus once we begin to abide in Jesus once we begin to spend intentional time in his presence once we begin to taste and experience the firsthand the joy of being with him making disciples is just going to be a natural byproduct of that joy you cannot help but make disciples when you are already a disciple. You know what I think the greatest example of discipleship in our culture is? BTS Army, okay, hands down. I have never seen a group more group of people more visibly bear witness to their love for a common object than Army. I've never seen it. This week, as you know, BTS announced they were taking a break uh, to focus on their individual solo projects, which was big news. Uh, apparently. (laughs) And uh, as I was scrolling through the barrage of social media posts about this, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm witnessing firsthand the power of discipleship. People like sharing their testimonies on Instagram of how they were introduced to BTS by a friend who like chose to invest in their life and show them the light and open their eyes. You know, like like, uh, I mean, someone who sat with them and helped them discover their bias. You know, someone who hosted listening parties in their home, taught them dances, who, who shared with them articles and stories about... I was like, this is incredible. I mean, this is discipleship at its finest. And it's, it's the best when you have a chance to sit with, like, two people, uh, a, a disciple and a discipler of BTS, because like when the disciple is like talking about their bias and talking about all the things they love about the group the person who discipled them just has this proud look on their face they're like mm, my job is done now you go make disciples of all nations right it's incredible we already do it we are already making disciples and you will automatically inevitably begin to make disciples of the things that you are a disciple of now you might be saying okay it's one thing to disciple someone into bts fandom it's another thing to disciple someone into a relationship with jesus i don't even know my bible that well i myself have a lot of doubts i'm kind of deconstructing my own faith you know what i love about matthew 28 if you notice what it says in verses 16 and 17 it says then the 11 disciples left for galilee going to the mountain where jesus had told them to go and get this And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. He calls them disciples first, and then he adds that some of them doubted. It's a reminder that we are all on different stages of our journey. Some of us are in a stage where we're very uncertain and even doubtful about our faith, where we're asking some big questions. Some of us are further along, where we feel like we're growing and we're maturing. But at the end of the day, All of us are called to disciple. And in fact, God often uses people who are less experienced in the faith and honest about their doubts and shortcomings to reach others who are also doubting. You know, one of the things that changed so much for me when I became a pastor is I, like, suddenly realized kind of the effect that I have on a conversation, right? The moment I tell someone I'm a pastor, automatically the barriers go up. You know, I shared this in a previous sermon, but, like, I went to, like, my um, wife's company party once. And when they found out I was a pastor, someone asked me, like, oh, are we supposed to call you father? And I was like, no, that's not what pastors are. Okay, like, um, but there are people that just by nature of my role that I cannot reach, that will not share who they are honestly with me. There are also situations and relationships I can't speak to because of my own limited experience. But this is where the church can truly be the church and embrace the fact that we're all wired uniquely with different gifts, life experiences, backgrounds, families of origin, industries, and God has entrusted specific people to our care for a reason. You are a teacher for a reason. You work with a specific group of people for a reason. You are in healthcare for a reason. Dallas Willard says discipleship is learning how to do what Jesus would do if he were you. And I wonder what would happen to our city and the world if all believers understood and embraced this calling. What would happen? Obviously, I'm not saying this is going to be easy. I'm not saying it's not going to be frustrating when you look at yourself and you see that you're so far from where you need to be or you look at the people in your life and you realize they're so far from where, where they need to be. But in those moments, I want us to remember this. God never gives up on you. God never stops investing in you. God never stops pursuing you. In fact, God loves you so much that He sent His only Son to die for you when you were at your worst. When you were at your worst. And now because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, that God doesn't see you as you are, but he sees you for who you're becoming. He doesn't see you as you are, but he sees you for who you're becoming. And guess what? He's here for all of it. I love the last thing Jesus says here. He says, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not just here for the end result. I'm here for the whole process. I will never stop working in you and I will never stop working through you. I'm here for the mistakes. I'm here for the setbacks. I will never leave you. And remembering this will not only give us the ability to show grace to ourselves and grace to others when they fail, but it will allow us to celebrate every step forward no matter how small small that step is. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, I went to my daughter's first piano recital. And uh, if you've ever been to a children's piano recital, it's pretty rough, okay? I mean, you're you're basically there to watch your child play for 30 seconds. And in order to enjoy those 30 seconds, you have to withstand like two hours of rough piano, okay? Um, No offense, okay? Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Cause you have students who just started playing piano like a couple weeks ago, a few months, they're young, right? And you know, like people just kind of fumbling through their parts, making mistakes here and there. Every student though, every time someone made a mistake, I looked over at my daughter's piano teacher who is a piano master, right? Who, if anyone should be bothered by mistakes, it would be her. I would look over at her. She's just beaming the entire time. She's like, you just see this look of pride on her face. For her, it was not about perfection. It was about progress. And for her who loved piano so much, seeing someone else fall in love with this instrument she loved, that in and of itself was everything to her. This is what being a disciple and making disciples look like and this is the heart of our heavenly father as he looks upon us there is nothing that brings God more joy than watching his children fall deeper in love with him they say that disciple is not a destination but a direction it's a lifelong journey of moving toward God becoming more like him and then bringing along others for the ride this is why the church exists let me pray for us Lord, we thank you that you are raising up disciples, you are raising up followers who aren't perfect, who fall short, who are weak and inadequate. But we thank you that you don't give up on us. We thank you that you still use us to then disciple others into the way of life you promise us life abundant lord i pray um, for every person in this room god when we go out into the real world monday all of us will be flooded with the discipleship this world offers us all of us will be flooded with different promises empty promises Promising us to satisfy the deepest angst in our soul, but one that can never deliver on those promises. And so God, in the midst uh, of that kind of a discipleship, we ask that the church would step up to be a space where people are reformed, where people are counterformed into the way of Jesus, where people are counterformed to become people of love, of mercy, of compassion in this world full of hostility, violence, and division where people are counterformed to show generosity in this world where we're taught to hoard things for ourselves. I pray that we would be a church in LA that is in the world but not of the world. Help us, God, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Help us to become like you help us to fall more in love with you god would your spirit show us your beauty your majesty would your spirit open our eyes to see you for who you are we thank you for this word today we pray all this in your son's precious name amen